You know, there's a question that people ask every now and then, and that is, that's part of it. Does God know what I'm going to do before I do it? It's a question people sometimes ask. Does does God know what I'm going to do before I do it? Well, if you think about it, everything that God knows is true. And everything that God knows is actual. So if God knew what I was going to do before I did it, then it would not be my freedom of choice to do it because it would already be something that he knows must be done and will be done. So the question is, does God know what I'm going to do before I do it? Does he know the choice that I'm going to make before I make it? The answer is no. He does not know. Well, what does he know? He knows the consequence of every choice that you make. That's why he can tell you don't do that, because if you do that, that's, he knows what's going to happen. How do I know that's true? You don't have to go there. Just write it down. Isaiah 46, 9. You don't have to go there, but just write it down. This reveals that the Lord knows the end from the beginning. He says, I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. In other words, he knows how something is going to end by the way it begins. He knows the choice, he knows the consequences of the choice that you make when you make the choice. Does that make sense to you, Sister Cooper? If God knew what you were going to do, then it wouldn't be you making the choice. Because everything he knows is. So it wouldn't be your freedom to choose to make, if, let me, if God knew that Adam was going, God knew that Adam was going to sin, If God knew that Adam was going to sin, that means he intended for everything that we're going through to happen. But he didn't know that Adam was going to sin. He knew it was possible. He knew that the possibility was there. That's why it says he was slain before the foundation of the world. He had things in place because he knew what the consequences would be when Adam made that choice. But he left it the choice to Adam. He knows the end of something by how it begins. He knows the conclusion of an event by how it starts. He knows the consequence of a choice according to the choice that is made. And with absolute certainty, God knows the exact consequence of every choice. Now that's a mind blower. He knows the absolute consequence of every possible choice we can make. The first example of this truth is when God created the first human beings, placed them in a perfect world and gave them explicit instructions. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then he told them exactly what the consequence would be if they did it, if they chose to eat from the tree. And because he knows the end from the beginning, God also knew that if they disobeyed, it would be necessary for him to sacrifice his body and blood for the sin and redemption of them and their descendants. So at the very moment that Adam and Eve disobeyed God, Jesus was on the cross because that was the consequence of the choice that they made. We know that God would have rather not done that because in the garden, Jesus said, 
if you let this cup pass from me. He did not want to do it, but he had no choice. He had to do it because it was the consequence of the choice of the first human being that was created. How do we know? First Peter one nineteen. First Peter one nineteen. First Peter one nineteen. But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Listen, listen, listen. Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. It says he was ordained to go to the cross before the foundation of the world. God had a plan in place in case man decided to disobey him. We know the story, don't we? The enemy of the human soul influenced the first human beings to do exactly what they were told not to do. And we still do that, don't we? We still do exactly what we're told not to do. You have your children. The very thing you tell your children not to do is the very thing they do. But the thing is, they didn't believe God. They chose to eat from the tree. They didn't accept his command as true. That was the first demonstration of a lack of faith. That was the first demonstration of a lack of faith because God told them, if you eat, you will die. They didn't believe him. So they didn't have faith and belief in what he was telling them was true. They chose to believe a lie from the enemy of their souls rather than to believe the truth of God. And we're still doing that today. We're still believing the enemy of our souls as as opposed to believing the truth of God. This reality gives us a glimpse now into God's righteous objectivity. His righteous objectivity. For while he knows the end from the beginning... And regardless of what he knows the end will be, listen closely. God does not force the intelligent beings he created into submission. He does not make you accept the gospel. He does not make you accept the blood of uh, his blood. He does not make you do anything. You have your own free will, free choice to do what you want to do. And I love, at this point, I like to say this every time I get a chance. Something that you need to get into your mind, get it really deep into your thought locker. You are free to do whatever you want to do. But you are not free from the consequences of doing whatever you want to do. You're free to do whatever you want to do, but you are not free from the consequences of doing whatever you want to do. Adam was free to do whatever he wanted to do, but he was not free from the consequences. Make sense to you? So God does not force intelligent beings he created into submission. How do we know? 2 Peter 2.4, 2 Peter 2.4 says, God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. The angels sinned. Now, this is a parenthetical statement. In other words, it's, it's, it's just in parentheses for something else that he was saying. However, this historical truth was revealed to Peter. This is a truth that it had to be revealed because there's no way Peter would have known that the angel sinned against God. How would he know unless God revealed it to him? So God created Satan and the angels. However, they chose to rebel against him, which is a clear indication now 
that God even allowed them to have freedom of choice without without compulsion. What's interesting about angels, though, and us is angels don't have souls. Therefore, there's no redemption for them. There's nothing that can. God died to save our souls, to redeem our souls. Angels have no souls. So there was not there was nothing that can be redeemed for them. And that's why the devil hates you, because you've got something that he can never have. You've got a soul and God loves that soul. He loves that soul so much that he died for that soul. But when the when the heat when, when Satan sinned against him, he was cast into hell. Now, to my knowledge, there is no biblical mention of God warning the devil and the angels that sinned. However, we know that God is righteous. We know he warned the first human beings and we know their act of disobedience was sin. Therefore, we can safely assume that if the devil and some of the angels sinned, they must have committed a violation against God that they were warned about. The consequence for them, just as it is for us, the consequence was death, eternal separation from the presence of God. That's eternal death, to be eternally separated from the presence of God, which is the same consequence that the first human beings experienced. Once they rebelled from God, once they disobeyed God, God told them, you will die. And they were now separated from his presence. And now, because there was no redemption for the devil and his angels who rebelled against God, they were cast into hell and the chains of darkness until the day of judgment. And that's why you must be born of the water and of the spirit. You must repent of your sins. You must be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sins. And you must receive the indwelling of the Holy Ghost evidenced by speaking in tongues. Because if if you don't, you're equated with the angels and there's no redemption for you. And you're going to be cast into hell also because that's what hell was made for, for the devil and his angels. So if you choose to refuse to accept the gospel, if you you refuse to, to, to be saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Ghost, then the only option for you is to be spend eternity with the devil and his angels because there's no redemption for you either if you don't accept the blood of Christ. And that's the destiny of all intelligent beings, be it human or angel, that choose to rebel against God. Now, while we don't know for certain what caused the devil and some of the angels to rebel against God, we do know why the first human beings were influenced to rebel against God. They were influenced with temptation. What is temptation? Temptation is a spirit to which the carnal mind is innately vulnerable. Did you get that? Temptation is a spirit to which the carnal mind is innately vulnerable. It's in our nature to be to, to, to surrender to to yield to temptation. Temptation, listen, is a demonic and primal enemy of the soul. Temptation is a demonic and primal enemy of the soul. The spirit of temptation, in the form of a servant, influenced the first human beings to disobey God. Genesis 3, 4, Genesis 3, 4. And the servant said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die. 
For God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So temptation now, the spirit of temptation, used the doorway of ego to enter into the place where his influence would have the greatest success. Temptation, the spirit of temptation, used the doorway of evil, ego, excuse me, I didn't say evil. The, tempta- the spirit of temptation used the doorway of ego to enter into the place where his influence would have the greatest success. The ego is where the soul is easily prone to have an inordinately superior of itself in relationship to others. The ego is where the soul is easily prone to have an inordinately superior opinion of itself in relationship to others. Listen, listen, listen. The ego is where the mind of the flesh is easily deceived. The ego is where the mind of the flesh is easily deceived. Flattery will get you everywhere. Flattery. Folks love to be flattered. Why? Because it appeals to their ego. In admonishing the Corinthians, because they were being deceived into considering alternatives to the gospel, Paul mentions, alternative to the gospel, Paul tells them a truth. 2 Corinthians 11.3. 2 Corinthians 11.3. He says, But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Hmm. He says Eve was beguiled. She was beguiled. In the Greek, in the Greek, beguiled is exapateo. Exapateo. E-X-A-P-A-T-A-O. Exapateo. E-X-A-P-A-T-A-O. It means to deceive. To lead out of the right way into error. To lead out of the right way and into error. So Paul told the Corinthians, they were being deceived and led out of the right, right way into error in the same manner the serpent led Eve into, led Eve into error. And as I thought about this, about how the first human beings fell into temptation, I was profoundly struck by the righteous objectivity of God. Listen, listen, listen. I'm going to tell you how objective God is and how righteous he is. It occurred to me that while he placed in them the innate ability to obey, in equal measure, he placed in them the innate ability to disobey. That's how righteous God is, how fair and just he is. 
I want you to obey, so I'm going give to you, give you that ability to obey, but I'm going to give you the option to choose. And the only way I can give you the option to choose is if you also have the option to choose to disobey. That's how righteous God is. That's, how, that's, why, that's why he doesn't force anybody to be saved. It's a choice that you must make. Did you, did you get that? Just as they had the ability, he gave them the, the ability to obey, he also gave them that same ability, ability to disobey. And evidently, the tempter was aware of this dichotomy because with subtlety, treading a fine line between truth and falsehood, he tempted Eve. He told us some truth and he mixed it up with a lie. He, he approached her with doubt first. He said, you won't surely die. In other words, you don't know for certain that you will die. He says, you won't surely die. Then he backed it up with some truth. He says, for God does know that in the day that you eat thereof, then your eyes will be opened and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So he, he, he caused her to doubt. Told her you wouldn't surely die. But then, he, as I said, he told her the truth. How do we know that he told her, told her the truth? Because this is exactly what happened. Their eyes were open. Their awareness, of, their awareness of reality changed. They were now as gods, knowing good and evil. In fact, after they disobeyed in Genesis 3.22, Genesis 3.22 The Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest, where are my Bible study people? Lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. So less, he was doing that, letting you know he was going to do it to prevent them from doing it. Because even after they sinned, if they had had access to the tree of life, they would have continued to live forever. And you think it's a mess now. It would have been even a bigger mess. But probably not because they would have been selling the, the fruit off the tree of, uh, of life. So some folks would still die because they wouldn't be able to afford to buy the fruit from the tree of life. <laughs> But this is something, because you know what this tells us? It tells us that we all know good and evil. We all know it. We all know good and evil. Even as young as Houston is, he knows good and evil because it's innately in him. He knows when he's doing something wrong, and he knows when he's doing something right. It's innately in us. And that's what probably what the angels did, because he says they will have become as one of us. So the angels must have known the difference between good and evil as well and chose to do evil, which caused them the consequences of being separated from God. So with these various aspects into play now, with all this going on, the command not to eat, the innate inclination in the human beings to disobey or obey, and then the subtlety of the serpent, God knew the end from the beginning. Yes. He knew how it was all going to play out. Yes. 
But you know what's interesting? God created the serpent that beguiled Eve. Then cursed the serpent for his beguilement. But this is more evidence of God's righteous objectivity. God did not force the serpent he created into submission. Now, according to scripture, the serpent set the stage for Eve to be tempted in three ways. Am I, am I boring you? you getting tired? He, he, he set the, the stage for her to, her to be tempted in three ways. Genesis 3.6. Genesis 3.6. He set it up for her. It was set up for her in three ways. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to, de to be desired to make one wise. Is that what it says? She took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. Thus we see there were three points to the temptation. First, she saw that the tree was good for food. It appealed to her flesh. Next, the tree was pleasant to the eyes. It appealed to her covetous nature. Finally, the tree was desired to make one wise. It appealed to her ego and to her sense of pride. So now, it appears that the three reasons to disobey and eat outweighed the one reason to obey and not eat. It appears that the three reasons to disobey and eat outweighed the one reason to, dis to obey and not eat. And almost immediately, after making the decision to eat, she gave some to Adam, which suggests that their decision might have been mutual. Because he was right there. First John 2.16, he clearly outlines the three points. First John 2.16, he clearly outlines the three points of temptation. He says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Holy Ghost, but is of the world. That's 1 John 2.16. So the lust of the flesh. That she saw that the tree was good for food. The lust of the eye. It says that it was pleasant to her eyes. The pride of life. To be desired to make one wise. And you know what? You know, you know what's interesting about, about the devil? He knows, and he knew it very early on, that if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Which is why he tried the same approach on the last Adam that he tried on the first Adam. Matthew 4, 4, Matthew 4, 4, Matthew 4, 4. And when the tempter came to him, Jesus, he said, If thou be the Son of God, Command that these stones be made bread. That was the lust of the flesh. 
And then the devil taketh him up into the holy city and set him on a pinnacle and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. This was the pride of life. And again the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world. And he actually told him, I'll give you all of this if you worship me. This was the lust of the eye. And in verse 10, these three points of temptation, Jesus responded thusly. Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shall thou serve. Notice now in the beginning of this passage, passage, the devil is identified as, as what? The tempter. One who through lust and pride influenced beings to rebel against God. But why? Why are we tempted with lust and pride? Why are we tempted with lust and pride? Well, to tempt is to incite a desire and a craving for something. To tempt is to incite a desire and craving for something. That's why at dinner time, around dinner time, you see a hamburger commercials and you see pizza commercials. You see restaurant commercials during the time of evening when it's time to eat. Because what does it do? It incites your craving to go out and buy a plate of garbage. <laughs> I couldn't help that. <laughs> Second, lust is inordinate affection. Inordinate means it, it's excessive and unconstrained. Lust is inordinate. It means it is excessive and unconstrained. And affection is the desire for something. So when one is tempted, there is an incitement of an inordinate affection for something of which there might be an inability or weakness to resist. When one is tempted, there is an incitement of an inordinate affection for something of which there might be an inability or weakness to resist. That's why a well-known pastor used to say, the devil's got a candy bar for everybody. He know he can tempt you with what he thinks you cannot resist. He does not play fur. Now we must remember now that Jesus was human. Thus the tempter tried the same techniques on Jesus that he tried on the first humans. First, Jesus hadn't eaten for 40 days. So what did he do? Told him, make, make some bread out of, them, out of them rocks. So this was, so like the first humans, there was in Jesus the lust for food. The lust in his flesh for food. Didn't say he yielded to it, but he was human. I'm going to prove this also in just a minute. Next, Jesus created the heavens and the earth and all that exists, yet he owned nothing. He said, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man have no place to lay his head. So Jesus created the heavens and the earth and all that exists, yet he owned nothing. So like the first human beings, within him was the lust of the eye. Finally, Jesus was the Son of God, and yet he was meek and lowly. 
So like the first human beings, within him was the pride of life. But notice these statements are in the definitive case with T-H-E in front of them. Within the humanness of Jesus was the lust of the flesh, was the lust of the eye, and was the pride of life. Now the Bible says he was the last Adam, right? Thus the potentials now for lust and pride were in his flesh just like it was in the first Adam's flesh. Jesus was really tempted. Jesus was really tempted. Jesus was really genuinely tempted. But because he knows the end from the beginning, he was able to resist. Hebrews 4.15. Let me prove. We can prove what I'm talking about. You know, I never say anything I can't prove. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are. Is that what it says? Yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of temptation. He says, Jesus was tempted in all points, just as we are, yet without sin. So what we must understand is that while Jesus was the son of God, he was also the son of man. Son of man means he inherited our sins and our iniquities. So he was the son of man. He came to suffer in our place and on our behalf. So he had to be exactly like us to suffer for us. And if as the son of man and as the son of man, he was to suffer temptation, then according to the righteous objectivity of God, the potential for Jesus to yield to temptation had to be genuine. Are you getting this? It was necessary for Christ to face the same infirmities and the same temptations that we face. Hebrews 2.17. Hebrews 2.17. Is this making sense to you? Wherefore in all things. It behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. In things pertaining to God. <clears throat> to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Here it comes. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted. Is that what it says? For in that he himself has suffered being tempted. He was really tempted. He is able to succor them that are tempted. So in all things Jesus the son of man was human. In all things the son of man was like us. Through experience. He knew exactly what it was like to be human. And therefore, like all human beings who suffer temptation, Jesus suffered temptation also. So he really knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to be tempted. 
And but because he really knows what it's like to be tempted, he's our merciful and faithful. He has mercy on us in our tempted moments. And it says he is able to succor them that are tempted. To succor in the Greek is botheo. B-O-E-T-H-E-O. Botheo. Succor. Botheo. B-O-E-T-H-E-O. It means, listen, to hear a cry and give assistance. To hear a cry and give assistance. Now we just heard the writer of Hebrews say we can boldly come into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Well, the throne of grace is the mercy seat. It is the place where we can find grace, the effectual working mighty power of the Holy Ghost that can help us as we struggle to resist the attacks of the tempter. The throne of grace is where in our time of need we can come and cry out to the Lord and he will hear our cry. The Lord's ear is attuned to the righteous and he will answer their cry. We will hear our cry and give us the assistance that we need. The throne of grace is where in times of temptation we can obtain mercy. That's what we need, mercy. And then we get his grace. The throne of grace is the place of mercy where we can receive compassion and empathy. He has the intellectual understanding of what we're going through. We can receive empathy from the Lord. Why? Because he knows what it's like to be tempted. The throne of grace. Is the place where we have a way to escape temptation. There is no temptation that had taken you such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able. But with the temptation also make a way to escape. Brother Winston you always have a way to escape. Always. It's always there. That ye may be able to bear it. Paul says we all have common temptations. In other words, temptation comes at us all in one of three ways. The lust of our flesh, we are tempted to abuse substances. The lust of our flesh, we are tempted to abuse substances. Some of us eat too much. Some of us do a lot of stuff just too much. We gamble too much. We drink too much. Sensory, then, 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 sensory things that bring temporary satisfaction to our insatiable flesh. They call it comfort food. And then you eat until you're uncomfortable. So why do they call it comfort food? Because you eat until you're just uncomfortable. The lust of our eyes. We are tempted to crave the possession of material things even to the point of impoverishment. Impoverishment. Try to say that real quick. The lust of our eyes, we are tempted to crave the possession of material things, often to the point of impoverishment. Makes you poor. You spend money that you don't have. The pride of life, with the pride of life, we are tempted to be envious and jealous of others who have what we think we ought to have. 
I remember there was a preacher who used to preach that all the time. Ain't you tired of folks having what ought to be on, belong to you? I talk about it all the time. You hear me talk about it all the time. I'm like a broken record. Aren't you tired of folks having what, be, ought to be, ought to be, what you have? Then he came in my house and took what I had. This covetous attitude now is coupled with a feeling of superiority because it posits that I deserve to have this more than others do. And all three cause misery. The lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, they all cause us to be miserable. Oh, but God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above all that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. He says God is faithful that he will not suffer us. In this context, the word means permitted. God will not permit us to be tempted above our ability. But I want you to listen to this. Does this sound like he, Paul is saying God won't put more on you than you can bear? Is that what he's saying? No, that is not what this is saying at all. I don't know where folks get that because that is not what this is saying at all. You know, well, you know God won't put more on you than you can bear. But he said, cast your cares on me because I care for you. So am I putting cares on you so you can give them back to me? Am I putting burdens on you so you can give them back to me? We just heard him say, Christ himself has suffered being tempted. So he is able to succor them that are tempted. So what he is saying is that when the tempter comes, the Lord will not permit us to be tempted without a means of defense. Did you get that? When the tempter comes, the Lord will not permit us to be tempted without a means of a defense, without a way of escape. Yes, the Lord does permit us to be tempted because that's his righteous objectivity. And it determines that he must. However, his righteous objectivity also allows him to provide a means of defense. We have a way of escape. And the means of defense is to provide us with a way to escape. In the Greek, escape is ekbasis. Ekbasis. E-K. B-A-S-I-S, ekbasis, E-K, meaning as in out, ekbasis, it is an egress, it is an exit, it is a way out. So when we're tempted by the devil, there's an exit, there's a way out that the Lord has provided for us. I hope this is making sense to you. So, pastor. How do I escape the lust of my flesh? Because it's with me. Everywhere I go. Everywhere I go, there's my flesh. I can't go anywhere without my flesh. There is. Therefore, no condemnation 
to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit, capital S, walking after the Holy Ghost. You follow him. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. So the question is, do we mind the things of our flesh? Listen, do we give priority to the things of, of our flesh over the things of God? What do we entertain ourselves with? Uh-oh. Do we entertain ourselves with things that gratify the flesh or edify our souls? What kind of people do we socialize with? Association causes assimilation. Do we socialize with people who abuse substances and fornicate? It is in these moments that the tempter makes suggestions to stir up the lust of our flesh. However, the Bible says walk after the spirit. In other words, give priority to the things of God which we don't naturally do, even though we save sanctified filled with the Holy Ghost. It's not just something we do. We must organize our lives in such a way that we do come to church, that we do worship the Lord, and that we hear the word. Because nowadays, the only place that you can hear anything that is edifying and good for your soul is at Unity of Faith Christian Center. Yes, sir. You can't turn on the television and hear it. You can't turn on the radio and hear it. You can't listen to them mega folks and hear it. You're not going to hear it. Hmm. We must entertain ourselves with things that pertain to godliness. And the only thing we really have in our homes that pertain to godliness to entertain ourselves with is the word of God. So entertain yourself with the Bible. Entertain yourself with the Bible. Open it and just read one passage and just think on that passage for about an hour and you'll learn something about that simple passage that you never knew before and I guarantee you, you will be entertained. That's all you got to do. Open the Bible, preferably the New Testament and whatever your eyes lay on, whatever passage of scripture your eyes lay on, just read that one passage and, and read it, just that one passage, and think about it, and let it go over and over in your mind, and even because you got the Holy Ghost, say, Lord, what are you saying here? And you'll find yourself being greatly entertained. Because the Word of God is alive. <coughs> the Word of God is alive. He says, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of your flesh. So how does this work? You got to change your lifestyle. Not only is the Holy Ghost a way to escape temptation, he's a lifestyle that can keep you from temptation. <coughs> Excuse me. The point is, we have the indwelling of the Holy Ghost. 
Therefore, we are able to see the end from the beginning. Did you get that? We've got the Holy Ghost. We can see the end from the beginning. We're about to make a choice and we have a good idea of how it's going to turn out. But we'll do it anyway and then say, if I had just followed my first mind. For if ye after the flesh ye shall die. If you live after the flesh ye shall die. Living after your flesh can separate you from a whole lot of stuff. Living after the flesh can separate you from your money. Living after the flesh can separate you from your family. Living after the flesh can separate you from your job. Living after the flesh can separate you from a whole. You can die to a whole lot of stuff. Did you get that? But if ye through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Told you, built into the word of God is a good life. Built into the word of God is a good life if you just believe it and live it. Through the power of the Holy Ghost, we mortify the deeds of our flesh. We must mortify, we must kill our inclination to feed the lusts of our flesh. Now, I'm not saying it's easy. It's extremely difficult to fight the lusts of our flesh because in every moment of our existence, we are in a body of insatiable flesh. However, if we keep an awareness of the end from the beginning, then we will understand that it is more and it's more valuable to fight. It's worth the effort to fight the feeling. You got to fight the feeling. But what you must be aware of now, we must be aware you can't fight your flesh with your flesh. You can't put out fire with fire. As a matter of fact, you can't put out fire with gasoline. Try it. Get yourself a big bucket of gasoline and try to put out a fire. So you can't fight your flesh with your flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. We are saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Ghost. Therefore, the deeds of the flesh are not charged to our souls. Isn't that wonderful? However, if he can, the tempter will do whatever he can to make us miserable. When 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 you feed your flesh, you end up being miserable. He will torment us through the lust of our flesh. He will tease us with the lust of our eyes. Don't you want that? Yeah, you you know you want that. Go ahead. You deserve it. He will taunt us with the pride of life through our feelings of inferiority. We innately, all of us, I've said this before, we are coming, all come into this world with an innate feeling of inferiority. Why? Because we are inferior to God. And sin has made us inferior to everything. We are inferior to everything because of sin. And so we strive to do things that make us feel superior. That's why we will drive certain cars. We will wear certain clothes. We want certain jobs because we want other people to look at us and see us superior to them. And so what the the tempter does is he uses that. He uses that feeling of inferiority to to, to get you to, to pride of life, to be proud. That's something else that gets me. I talk about this. I hate for someone to say, I'm proud of you. I'm so proud. You take pride in what I did? 
I went to school and did all that, got an education and went through all that pain and misery and all that teachers and all that exams and all that stuff. And you're proud. You take pride in what I did. You didn't do it. I did it. I'm so proud of you. I take pride in what you did. And then there's also the angle, you meet my expectations. You meet my standards, so I'm proud of you. We, we, we don't need that word in our vocabulary. We don't. We don't need that word. Because the, the, the scripture talks against it. God resists the proud. Is that what it says? He resists the proud, but gives grace, gives his influence and power to the humble. Hmm. James 4, 5b. The spirit that dwell in us lusteth to envy. We naturally envy folks. But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he said, I just said it, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Here it comes. Here it comes. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Yield to God. Yield to the word of God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Because he doesn't waste his resources. Resist him and he'll flee, but he'll come back. But pride can cause us not to come to the throne of grace in our time of need. The tempter can convince us that we don't need the Lord to help us. We don't need the Lord to keep us saved. We can keep ourselves saved. We can do it on our own. But uh, James says, submit. Yield yourselves to the Lord. Cry out loud and sincerely ask him to help you. If you ask the Lord to help you and you're sincere about asking him to help you, guess what he'll do? He will help you. Walk in the spirit. Keep your mind stayed on Jesus. Resist the devil like Jesus did. The Holy Ghost and the way to escape that was in him is the same Holy Ghost and a way to escape that's in you. Fight temptation with his power. With the power of the Holy Ghost and with his words. Fight the tempter the same way Jesus did. How did Jesus fight the tempter? He fought the tempter with the word of God. Talk to yourself. Say no weapon formed against me shall prosper. The weapons of my warfare are mighty through the power of God for pulling down strongholds. You say I am more than a conqueror. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. You say, I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. Get behind me, devil, in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, I rebuke you. Not by my power, but by the power dwelling in my soul, I rebuke you. And he's got to go. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. The spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Sin shall not have dominion over me. Sin has no dominion over me. Sin has no dominion over me because by the power of the Holy Ghost, I've got victory over sin. I've got victory over my flesh. I've got victory over the world. I've got victory over the devil. I've got the victory. Why? Because victory is mine. 
Victory is mine. And I know this don't sound right, but I like to say it. Victory is mine. I told the devil to kiss my behind. I walk not after my flesh, but after the spirit of God that is within me. Tempter in the name of Jesus, I rebuke you. Jesus is the way. He's the only way to escape. Jesus is the only way to escape the lust of our flesh. Jesus is the only way to escape the lust of our eyes. Jesus is the only way to escape the pride of life. And on the cross, with his body and his blood, Jesus paved the way of our escape. So we can escape. We have escaped from the world. He's made a way for us to escape from our flesh. He's made a way for us to escape the devil. So when you're struggling, no matter what you're struggling with, you might be struggling with depression. You might be struggling with hopelessness. You might be struggling with anxiety. You might be struggling with feelings of inadequacy. But no matter what you're struggling with, there's a way to escape. God is faithful. He is faithful. You belong to him. He purchased you with his own blood. And he will not deny you anything. Why? Because he won't deny himself. He put his power in you. He put his strength in you. He put his joy in you. He put his peace in you. God is faithful. God is faithful. Who will not suffer you to be tempted above all that ye are able. But will with the temptation also make a way to escape. Let's give the Lord some praise. Let's give the Lord some praise. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Your word is spirit. Your word is life. Your word is meek and drink to our souls. Thank you, Lord, for this word in Jesus' name. Anyone in need of prayer this morning? Anyone in need of prayer? All right.